We in the book of Hebrews recognize something, and that is that this is a book of encouragement. It's a book of hope. It's a book of comfort. It's a a sermon that is designed from start to finish to encourage the people to move forward. Not to slide back, not even to stay where they are, but to move forward. It's the reason why many think that Barnabas perhaps was the writer of the book. Now we don't know for sure. We've talked about that, different possibilities. But Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. And if you don't remember anything else about this book as we study through it, remember it is designed to encourage and to bring hope to people. I share that because Wednesday night we were in chapter 6. We're going to be in chapter 6 again. And you can turn in your Bibles there. In Hebrews chapter 6, these verses we studied, talked about, and read. I want to read them again to you, especially for those of you who missed this Wednesday night. In verse 4 it says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come. I mean, this is someone who is all in. And then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, what the devil has done with those verses, and by the way, he is well-versed in Scripture. What the devil has done with those verses is caused Christians to doubt their salvation. Has caused Christians to go back and say, well, wait, I've been enlightened, I've tasted of the heavenly gift, I've partaken of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the ages to come, and what if I fall away? That is not the point. It is not the point of the passage. In fact, what he is setting up is an impossible scenario. A ridiculous one. For someone to be so filled with the Spirit of God, so enlightened, which basically means born again. You know you can't be born again again. You're born again. There are in our lifetime, there are only two possible births. Your physical birth and your spiritual birth. Can you go back to your physical birth? Nicodemus asked Jesus that very question. Should I enter once again into my mother's womb and and be born again? What does this mean? No, you can't do that. Guess what? To be born again means to have tasted of the heavenly. It means to have the Holy Spirit. It means to be enlightened. It means to be a child of God. You don't go back from that. Well, Rick, if you say that, you're just going to open up the door for people to sin. You're just giving license to sin. No, I'm not. Because if you happen to be one who's enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and a partaker of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the ages to come, that is not your desire. You are not going to want to go back and sin. By the way, he doesn't say that once you've done all this, once you've been born again, that you'll never sin again. Of course you will. That's why we need grace. That's why we need the forgiveness of God. My point is this. This is a letter of encouragement. This is a sermon to build up and encourage people to move forward. In fact, he just got done at the beginning of chapter 6 saying, let's leave the elementary teaching. We all know that stuff. What elementary teaching? Foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. We know about that stuff. Move on. Grow up in your faith. And that's the encouragement of the book. And if there's any one thing in this pastor's opinion that we need, that our society especially needs, it's that kind of hope. 
It's the hope that comes of eternal salvation. It's the hope of knowing that there is a Jesus who has me, who holds me, and who will see me through. What have we been saying the last two weeks? He gets me, He's got me, He will get me through. And so Father, this morning as we enter into the study before us, my prayer is a prayer of encouragement, of parakaleo, of comfort. Oh, Father, comfort Your people and build up faith and make us ready, ready for You. May we not be a people who spin around all kinds of scenarios looking back at the past and back at our failures and back even at pre-salvation life but drawn forward, always forward. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone among us this morning, either service, who is not saved, who has not tasted of the heavenly gift and been enlightened by Your Spirit, Father, if, if there's anyone in that place, would You, by Your Spirit, encourage them to move forward by taking the step of faith in Jesus? And as we study Holy Spirit, I pray that You will continue to enlighten us and open our eyes and encourage our hearts to follow hard after You, to be diligent to enter our rest, to be in Your presence, Lord, and as we sang, to be a bride ready for our groom. In Jesus' name, Amen. So with all that in mind, the chapter continues on. Around verse 9, he says, Beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you and of things that accompany salvation. Because the writer, the pastor, is convinced of that. He's convinced that he's talking to saved people. And he continues from there and he talks about love in verse 10. And he talks about the full assurance of hope in verse 11. And he talks about faith and patience in verse 12. And then he gets to verse 13. And for our text this morning... He writes, he says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Oh, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Let's pray again. Father, these are encouraging, hopeful words. So again, fill us with your spirit to receive them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was just this past summer that, uh, that I gave a, a sermon, a teaching called Catching Up on Hope. And it was right out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 dealing with the catching up of the faithful, of believers, of the church, called the rapture of the church. And we looked at that and, and we read a couple of famous quotes at the beginning of that teaching. This was running around in my brain. In fact, it was one of those moments where I I wrote down both of these quotes and notes for today and then went, I know I've shared these before. And recently, well, it was this summer, Alexander Pope, in his essay on man, said, Hope springs eternal in the human breast. 
Man never is, but always to be blessed. And Emily Dickinson in poem number 254 said, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul. Which one is it? Is it that hope springs eternal in the human breast, in the heart? Is hope a heart thing? Or is hope a soul thing? It perches in the soul. we got to get Alexander and Emily together on this. Two need to have a conversation. Where does hope make its home? And I would suggest to you, not so much in the spirit as in the soul. The spirit, the heart, versus the soul, the mind. And the soul is where we need hope. You know, hope is a thing that's going to go away. You realize that? When we're in heaven with Jesus, we're not going to have to hope anymore. Hope is just going to go away because everything will be then and there. And now we will enter into the presence of the I am. And when you are, you don't have to hope for what will be because you already are. Hope's going away. Faith is going to go away. You're not going to need to have faith because you're going to know Him. You're going to see Him. You will be with Him. Love will remain eternally. But we need faith now to trust Him. Believing that which we cannot see. We need hope now, which gets us from one day to the next. Hope, it's a soul issue. And if there's anything our society needs, it's hope. If there's anything people need, it is hope. Also this past summer, the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention released a survey of 14,000 Americans. So this is a large survey. And the results yielded this shocking truth. The number of Americans who say they regularly take antidepressants has raised 65% in the last decade. That's, that's huge. I mean, that is a massive increase. It is the largest increase in the use of such drugs in the history of our nation. And women are twice as likely as men to take antidepressant drugs. I know some women would say that's because of the men, but don't say that. (laughs) Part of that surge, they say, is due to mental health problems being far less stigmatized than in previous generations. And I am actually one who is thankful for that, that we don't look at someone as as less than because they're struggling with mental issues as opposed to physical. You know what? It's, It's all interrelated. However, Dr. Seth Mandel, director of psychiatry at Northwell Health's Huntington Hospital in New York, notes the following. He says, people have become increasingly stressed and depressed in our society. Social media continues to paradoxically cause people to be more isolated and out of touch with their feelings. So they talk about people being stressed and depressed and isolated, and I think something else is going on, something that is the underlying problem of all this, and that it's an increasing lack of hope. People don't have anything to hope for. You hope for different, uh, arriving in different places in life, you arrive there, and it may be good, but once you arrive, it's over, now what are you going to hope for? And without anything beyond ourselves, anything greater, especially in terms of eternity... Where is the hope? If you look it up, the antonym of hope is despair. And I would submit that where there is no hope, despair is is the reality. Just a week ago, I heard a very dear friend say, I just feel so 
hopeless. And when I heard that, it, it broke my heart. And I began to think of this before I even got to the passage for today and realized what we were going to be talking about. I've been thinking about this issue of hopelessness. I looked it up, by the way. I did a web search on hope. I found a website. I'm not even going to give you the name because we don't need to hear the name. I don't want anybody going there. It was a website that was established by a guy who a few years ago tried to commit suicide and was really disappointed with the lack of information he could find on the web. So he developed a site for it. So there's someone suicidal, they could go to the site and get some help in figuring out ways to go about this. Unbelievable. And at the very end of the introduction paragraph, he writes, I hope this helps. <laughs> That's the problem. There is no hope. Do you feel hopeless this morning? Now, you don't have to raise a hand. Please don't. Unless you need to. We'll help. But do you feel hopeless this morning? If you do... Listen to this. Before we even get to Hebrews, go over to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. Because I I can't even wait till we get through the teaching to give a measure of hope. Psalm 42. I'm going to read the whole thing, so you just keep getting there until you get there. But listen up. Verse 1 reads, As the deer pants for water brooks, So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Well, they say to me all day long, where's your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Boy, I feel like he's talking to Christians there. People who have known the joy of worship and known the the wonder of fellowship and long for these things in, in good seasons of our life, and then it all starts to fall apart and hopelessness enters the picture and we find ourselves remembering those good days and wondering where they went. Wondering, will they ever come again? But then he says in verse 5, Why are you in despair? Literally, why are you so downcast? Oh, my soul, why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet again praise Him, the help of His presence. Oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. He's right back into it. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. And the Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime. His song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. And you Bible students know countenance, that's your face. The help of your countenance, what lifts up your face, what brings the smile to your countenance. Hope in God. 
What lifts a person out of despair? Hope in God. And by the way, note this, six times the psalmist uses the word in the Hebrew, soul. Soul. Six is the number of man. Soul is the issue. Soul is, as we've talked about many times, the battleground. Soul is where the inserted thought patterns of the enemy enter into the fray and seek to divide out our spirit and and confuse us. Soul is where we work things out, think things through. Soul gets often in the way of spirit because we think too much and we're not listening to his spirit. Soul is where the battle happens. The soul is the seat of mental and emotional health and well-being or despair. The soul. And while the antonym, as I told you before, the antonym of hope is despair, the antidote for despair is hope. And what the soul needs is hope. What we are called to, invited to dwell on, is hope in God. Because you see, when you have hope in God, it takes you beyond any and every circumstance of your life. Loss, sickness, hurt, emotional distress, relational messes, all of that is circumstantial and it's temporary. Hope in God is eternal. Hope in God lifts us beyond ourselves. Now, go back to Hebrews chapter 6. Keep all that in mind because listen to how the pastor refers to hope in this passage. How he lays it out before us. He's continuing in his sermon. And I don't know, perhaps maybe when we're, when we're done with the whole book, we'll just start in verse 1 and we'll just read it straight through. And here it is a sermon. That might be a good idea to do. I don't know if I could just go verse by verse and just read it. I'd have to give comment. So maybe we won't do that. Anyway, verse 11, he says we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. The full assurance of hope. Hope is el peace. Just think of the word peace. In the Greek, el peace. Hope. It's the expectation of coming good. It's the patient waiting for what you know will come. That's hope. But he doesn't just use the word hope. He says the full assurance of hope. Where do we get that? I mean, it's one thing to hope, but it's another thing to be fully assured in that hope. I'm not just hoping against hope or trying to drum up hope within my, within my soul. This is a full assurance of hope. This is being able to walk through life absolutely assured, again, regardless of circumstances, that I'm going to be with Him. That I have true hope. The full assurance of hope. Listen, it's what gave a 75-year-old Abraham the wherewithal to wait another 25 years to see a promise fulfilled. Someone ever say, hey, I I want to do something really special for you. Um, But you're not going to know about it for 25 years. You're not going to experience it for 20. I'll I'll even tell you what it is, but you don't get it for 25 years. I mean, how long before you've forgotten? (laughs) And Abram, at the time, Abram, who became Abraham, was, was given this promise of God, and then he had to wait, and wait, and wait, and wait. And wait. By the way, Abraham is a key figure in this sermon, and he's a key figure in two ways. The reason why he's even brought up, the first reason is he is the connection to an enigmatic figure named Melchizedek, who we will be talking about on Wednesday night, and I'm just going to tell you, you don't want to miss it. 
Even if you happen to be a busy person and Wednesday night is not your thing, make it your thing this week. We're going to talk about this Melchizedek. But Abraham's the connection to him. And Abraham also is, as the Bible calls him, the father of all who believe. Romans 4.11 Father of the faithful, we say. He believed God when he had little or no reason to believe God. And his faith became for him the assurance, we might even say, as the Hebrew writer does, the full assurance of what he hoped for and the conviction of what he had not seen. That's Hebrews 11.1. 1. Well, to the passage this morning, verse 13, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having waited, patiently waited, he obtained the promise. I want to follow Abraham's story through. So keep your finger in Hebrews 6 and go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12.1 Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country. And from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is a big promise. That's larger than any promise I've ever been given in my life, save eternal salvation. But even then, that's just my salvation with y'all. When, when I think about what Abraham heard, at this point he's, Abram, leave your country, go where I show you, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Can you imagine the conversation between Abram and Sarai at that point? He's 75, she's roughly 65. And he comes home and says, um, God told me, which God, she says, no, no. Just one, the only God, revealed himself to me. Oh, she says. He said he's going to make me a great nation. Well, that's nice. And she goes on rolling out the dough and then all of a sudden she goes, well, huh? <laughs> because that's going to involve me. <laughs> and that's the beginning of the promise. Now, that's not the promise that's quoted back in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 14, where he says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. No, that's not the promise. This is the beginning of the promise. But Abram had enough hope to get him from Ur, the Chaldees, all the way into Hebron, the land of Canaan. He followed, he believed. But in that journey, Abram begins to wonder, is is God going to follow through? Is this God who revealed himself to me, is he really going to do what he told me he would do? Skip ahead to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, verse 1. Which says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Let me clarify. This verse is literally, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. God lays this out. Now, a little more history here. Before you get to Genesis chapter 15... You realize in Genesis 14 that Abram is fresh off an epic battle against a bunch of warlord kings and their armies. Nine different kings were duking it out. 
And Lot gets kidnapped in the process. Well, Abram finds out about this. So he goes with a bunch of his hired hands or his servants, 300 or so of his servants, go with Abram to try and rescue Lot out of this raging battle. And this is Lord of the Rings stuff, okay? And he heads over there, and in the midst of the night... He executes this brilliant, we don't even have all the details, but this brilliant guerrilla raid, if you will, rescues Lot and defeats the kings. And then comes back. And on the way back, he's going to meet someone we'll talk about Wednesday night. But now he's back, and it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. Do not fear. Why? I think... Abram was experiencing PTSD. As serious as it is. He is fresh off a battle. For those of you who have ever fought, who have ever been in battle, you know even when it's victorious, it's stressful. And sometimes after the fact is when it causes people to break down. And for all of that stress that has to be put aside because you've got to do the job. You've got to stay focused. But when it's over, then all the emotion and all the feeling comes rushing back in, and that's PTSD. And that's what so many of our soldiers deal with. They can't deal with it on the battlefield, so they come home, and in a safe place, all of it comes back. And they have to deal with it. And I think that's what's going on with Abram. There's no other reason for God to tell him, do not fear, Abram. Don't worry. It's all right. I get this picture of Abram in his tent, just shaken, when he realizes what he's just come from. I guess there's another reason you could say do not fear Abram and that's because the word of the Lord appeared to him. At which point he may need to say do not fear. But whatever the reason, the Lord says something remarkable. He says, I am your shield. I am your reward. In other words, look, Abe, I'm your hope. I'm your hope. I'm your shield now. And I'm your reward then. If you're going to hope in anything now, hope in me because I'm your protection. And if you're going to hope in anything then, hope in me because I'm your reward. I'm both. I'm what you need now. I'm what you will have then. And in verse 2, this is how we know Abram is starting to doubt or question God. He says, Oh Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. In other words, Eliezer, my slave, my servant. I've got to give it to him because I've got no one else to give it to. He's misunderstanding the promise. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, verse 4, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. He took him outside. He said, look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And verse 6 says, then Abram believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. There's the promise. I'm going to make you a great nation, Genesis 12. I'm going to make you a great nation and your heir is going to come straight out of your body, Abram. It's what I said before. Let me clarify a little bit. It's not just great nation. It's you are going to have an heir. Oh, all right. He believes the promise. Now, that's still not the promise that we have in Hebrews 6. Still not the location of the quotation. But hey, Abram believed God. 
Well, then in Genesis 16, Abram and Sarai decide to help God out. You know, take matters into their own hands with a little help from Hagar. You know how that story went. So in Genesis 17, God shows up again. (laughs) After now Hagar has given birth to Ishmael, because Abram and Hagar went in and slept together, because, you know, Abram and Sarai are just helping God out. Clearly God has a plan, but He's not moving on His plan, so we need to do our part. We gotta help God along a bit here, because you know, maybe he's just—I don't know—maybe he's busy in some other part of the world. And so along comes Ishmael, and with him an entire mess that we're not even going to talk about this morning. What's amazing to me is God shows up in Genesis 17 to Abram again, and surprisingly, He doesn't condemn Abram; He renames him. Why didn't He condemn him, Abram? Point. See, that's what I would do. I'd flick his head. I'd walk up to him and go, Pink, what are you doing? Where in the promise did I mention an Egyptian handmaid? You know? Abram, come on. No, he doesn't do that. He renames Abram. Abram means exalted father, which has to do with his wealth and his family line. And, you know, so he's exalted father, but he's really not a father. And then God changes his name to Abraham, which is father of nations. Again, extending this promise. He changes Sarai's name, Sarai, which means princess, little princess, changes that to Sarah, a very slight change, but it literally means a woman or mother of kings. She goes from being a princess to being a queen in the change of her name. And then in verse 16 of Genesis 17, note this, God says, I will bless her, that is Sarah, and indeed I will give you a son, by her. Apparently I wasn't clear enough in Genesis 15 when I said the son's going to come from your body. Let me be clear, it's going to come from your body with your wife. Morons, you know, that would be me. How did you miss this? God doesn't do that. He is so gracious. And then I will bless her and she will be a mother of nations. She will be Sarah. Kings of people will come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. (laughs) It's a laugh of incredulity. A laugh of unbelief from the father of the faithful. And he said in his heart, which is to say not out loud, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? He's thinking this thing. He's laughing. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Laughter. (laughs) It's just beautiful. You know, God has a sense of humor. He sees what's going on. Abraham is laughing a laughter of incredulity, which will become a laughter of joy when God follows through with the promise. You're going to name him Isaac, Ishtak. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Now the promise is getting more specific. But God rests every hope for Abraham and Sarah now solely on an as yet unborn child, Isaac. This is the promise. Again, Ishmael and Hagar, you know what? They represent man's slipshod solutions. Our attempts to make it work. We don't see how it can work, so we strategize and we plan and we and we think and we 
put into motion our stuff. Because we got to help God out. I'll tell you what, hope in God means that you go to Him to help you out. And not the other way around. Isaac through Sarah exemplifies the potency of God's plan. And the perfection of His timing. I ask you, are we so confident in our solutions that we would prefer them to God's will and purposes? This is why we keep talking about waiting on the Lord. If we wait for Him, we see Him work. If we force our will and our purposes, hey, they might even be successful for a time. But we miss what God's doing. Or we mess up what God had originally intended for us. Ephesians 1 verse 8 says, In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will. According to His kind intention which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens. Things on the earth. When we trust ourselves to pull it off by the sweat of our brow and the schemes of our hands, no wonder we lose hope. Because our plans so often go awry. Now, this is still not the promise back in Hebrews. We still haven't even gotten there. Why does that matter, you might ask? It's just an Old Testament quote, right? It doesn't really matter. It matters because the full assurance of hope is bigger than simply a promise. So far, all we have is the promise. Do you realize that? In in each one of these instances, God has brought a promise to Abraham, but that's all. What do you mean, that's all? Keep your finger in Genesis and go back to Hebrews quickly, and then we're going to go back to Genesis. It's a little digital aerobics this morning. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16... The pastor explains, for men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring to show even more to show to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. It's not just a promise anymore. It's a promise and an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. It's not just hope in a promise. The full assurance of hope is a promise and an oath. It is the word given and it is the person of God on whom the word depends. It's hope to take hold of Because it's not only that His Word is His bond, He is His bond. It's based in Him and in who He is. In ancient days in Israel, there was a a supreme oath. It was the highest oath that you could offer if you were a Jewish person. And it is, as surely as Yahweh lives... If a Jewish person were to say, as, as surely as Yahweh lives, now you might say, well Rick, I don't, didn't think they said the name of God. Oh, they used to. God introduced himself and gave Yahweh, we're not exactly sure about the pronunciation, but he gave the I am word in the Hebrew to them as the name that they could call him. They called him by name. It's only been after the fact, later on, that they began to, you know, say, wow, we, 
We just need to say Hashem. Let's just call Him the name. Wouldn't that be a nice way to be referred to in, in your life, in your home? Now, they, don't, they don't want to call me Dad or you know Rick, they, so they call me the name. Uh, excuse me, the name, dinner time. The name, I mean, how personal is that? I understand the respect of the Jewish people, I really do. But they said, as surely as Yahweh lives. That was as high an oath as you could offer. Jesus said in Matthew 5.33, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of His feet, or by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great King. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, you can't make it grow either, I've tried, but let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no. Jesus said, listen, anything beyond these is of evil. Whoa then how come it's okay for God to swear? If I'm not allowed to give an oath, if I'm just to say yes or no, why does God get to? Because He cannot lie. You can, and so can I. He never lies. He is the truth in whom we can rely. Numbers 23.19, God's not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Paul writes to Titus in Titus 1 verse 2, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. There's your hope. But it's not just the promise. It's the oath. It's the promise of eternal life based on the person of God himself. The promise and the oath oath together. God is not arbitrary. He is not treacherous, as some religions teach about their own God. He's not nefarious. He's not the scoundrel who says, trust me, with a wink of the eye. Philo once said, God alone is the strongest security, first for himself and in the next place for his deeds also. And that's why the Bible says in Psalm 138 verse 2, you have magnified your word above all your name. Because His Word is based in His name. His name is His character. And so this full assurance of hope that we have is based on the promise and the oath. The Word and the person of God. Who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Take hold of that hope, that full assurance. Um... Pastor Rick, what passage is the pastor referring to then in verse 14? Because you haven't yet told us. I am so glad you asked. Go back now to Genesis. Genesis 22. This is vital. This is why when you see scriptures, Hebrew scriptures quoted in the New Testament, and you'll always know them because they're in small caps all the way through. You know, the translators have done us that Benny. Help us find those things. When you see those, go back and look where they came from. And why did they come from where they came from? This is huge. This is vital. Keeping your finger there, well, just listen. Again, Hebrews 6.14, the quote is, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. That's not just a generic, hey, God said he was going to bless Abraham kind of a quote. It's a specific quote from a specific location, Genesis 22, and we're going to read this through. 
Now it came about after these things. So after all the other times that God made promises to Abraham. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. You Bible students know this, but if you don't know this, note it. This is the first time the word love is used in the Bible. Is verse 2. Take your son, your only son whom you love, and it is the love of a father for his son. Which defines for us, helps us understand something of the love of God. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him, Mount Moriah, which by the way is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today. Took him to that place. On the third day, which is interesting, on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. He couldn't really tell his men, hey, I'm going to go sacrifice him, and I'll be right back. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his in his hand the fire with the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Are you getting the picture here? That the son is now carrying the wood of his sacrifice? just as Jesus carried the wood of the cross. The father has the tools of the sacrifice, the son is bearing the wood, and off they go together. And Isaac spoke to to Abraham, his father, verse 7, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? The lamb for the burnt offering. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. They came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. The parallel to the Father and to Jesus continues before us. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. And do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not only, since, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him, A ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Then Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. God did indeed provide a a ram. Not a lamb. Abraham said God will provide a lamb. Well, God would provide a lamb, the lamb Jesus Christ. But he sacrifices the ram in the place of his son. Verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And on the mount of the Lord, that is Mount Moriah, where the cross was erected, it was provided. Just as prophesied in this remarkable story. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time, watch this, from heaven. And he said, 
By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And there it is, the promise and the oath. Both together, finally, verse 16, by myself I have sworn. I'm not just promising you by my word, I am promising you by me, by my nature, by my character. That is the full assurance of the promise, of the hope that is quoted. Again, Hebrews 6.14, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. How can I be so sure? I hear your words, how can I trust you? Because I am basing this on me, says the Lord. F.F. Bruce says, On Isaac is now hung every hope that the father promises of God regarding Abraham's descendants would be fulfilled. Yet, it was Isaac whom Abraham was commanded to offer up to God. Why would God do this? Because real hope always involves faith. Real hope requires an infusion of faith. In fact, you know what? You really don't have one without the other. You don't have faith without hope, and you surely don't have hope without faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, again Hebrews 11.1, 1, the conviction of things not seen. You've got to have hope for faith to function, but you've got to have faith or hope will never take root. The two go hand in hand. Hebrews 11.19 is interesting to me. Abraham considered that God is able to raise even from the dead, from which also he received him back as a type. That is, he received Isaac back from the dead in the same way that Jesus would come back from the dead. And Abraham believed, why would Abraham even get the wood ready and the fire ready and and raise the knife? It's not because he believed God was going to stop him. The Hebrew pastor tells us, God was. it's not that he thought God would stop him, it's that he thought he would kill Isaac and God would raise him back to life because God had made a promise. But here God says, listen... It's so much bigger than simply the promise. It's the promise and the oath. It's hope. Man, we can hope for all kinds of things in life as I talked about. You can hope for a job. You can hope for a raise. You can hope for your health. You can hope for a relationship to be restored. We can hope things will work out. Tomorrow will be better. The spring will come. We can hope for these things. But the Bible says hope in God. Hope in God, not in your circumstances. Why? Because that hope does not disappoint. Romans 5, verse 5. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, listen, one more thing in Hebrews 22. Who's doing the talking here? Who's talking to Abraham? The angel of the Lord, which in Hebrew is the Malach Yahweh. Malach means messenger. Messenger of God. We've seen the Malach Yahweh before. We've seen him approach. We've seen him talk. We've seen him speak the very words of God himself. It says in verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven. And in verse 16, it's very clearly the Lord saying, by myself I have sworn. This is me. By myself. 
So it's clearly the Lord speaking. Which Lord? I think, my opinion, this is Jesus. And Jesus is talking to Abraham. And Jesus is orchestrating Genesis 22 and the whole picture that would be Jesus living it out 2,000 years later. It's stunning. The whole story of Genesis 22, which is the culmination really of the life of Abraham right here, is about Jesus Christ. The focus is on Him. Abraham and Isaac are simply a living parable of the greater truth. That is the sacrifice of God the Father, of His Son, Jesus Christ. And watch this, back in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 15, we are told, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Okay, there's a little problem with that. Hebrews 6.15 tells us he obtained the promise, but Hebrews 11.29 says, And all these, including Abraham, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Well, which one is it? He either obtained the promise or he didn't. Did he receive the promise or did he not receive the promise? And the truth is, much of the final, ultimate fulfillment of the promise and the oath that God made to Abraham still lies in the future. This is yet to come. From Abraham's perspective, 2,000 more years would have to go by before the promise of the Father and the Son, of Christ as the Lamb provided by God, before that promise would come to pass. It's been 2,000 years or so roughly since then, and there is still more of the promises to Abraham that need to come to pass, that will come to pass. But personally, Abraham obtained the promise the moment he received Isaac back from the dead. The moment he realized his son would not die, and we obtained the promise the moment another son came back from the dead. Though we have yet to be with Jesus in the final fulfillment, yet we have already obtained the promise. It will be fulfilled. It has been fulfilled. We obtained the promise in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Now listen to this. Here is the full assurance of hope. Romans 8.31 tells us, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. We have a promise and we have an oath. The promise is the Word and the oath is Jesus. Who is the Word? He is both promise and oath incarnate. The Word of God, Jesus Christ. He is our hope. And He is our peace. Now, back... Oh, i got to tell you one other thing. In Genesis 22. Verse 19. I don't know if you saw this. Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Fantastic. Where's Isaac? It doesn't say Abraham and Isaac returned to his young men. It just says Abraham does. Now, you might make the assumption, well, Isaac was probably with him, Rick. Yeah, but it doesn't say that. And there's a reason it doesn't say that. And the reason is very simply, the next time we see Isaac is in Genesis 24 receiving his bride. Which completes the picture. He goes up on the mountain to be sacrificed. 
The father comes back down and Isaac is now gone. Like an ascended Jesus who doesn't come back into the picture, who isn't seen again until he comes for his bride, just as Isaac came for his bride in Genesis 24. Like a bride ready for her groom, we'll be a church ready for you. Are we Isaac ready? In Genesis 24-67, it tells us Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebekah, she became his wife, and he loved her, and that's the second mention of love in the Bible. The first mention is the love of a father for his son. The second mention is the love of the son for the bride. It's a beautiful picture. But it's not just a picture. It's a promise interposed with an oath. Now, Hebrews 6.19, to finish up, he says this hope. We have, as an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one that enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now again, we will find out why Melchizedek is such a big deal in this story on Wednesday night. But the full assurance of hope is an anchor. An anchor. So the hope is the anchor. But the the anchor itself is only as good as the rock to which it's moored. Hebrews 13.8 tells us that rock, Jesus Christ, is the same yesterday and today and forever. You thought I forgot, didn't you? But did you catch what this anchor is for? It is an anchor for the soul. It's a soul anchor. Hope is the soul anchor. It's the anchor for the mind. This is what we're talking about. The soul. The place that despair happens. Psalm 42.11 Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. Hope is the anchor of the soul. Anchored into Jesus Christ. The promise and the oath. So that we can be absolutely assured of our salvation. Assured of our eternity. Assured of all that God has promised, it will come to pass. At the end of the chapter, he also refers to Jesus as the forerunner. You know what that means? To have a forerunner, it means you have to have afterrunners. He goes first, we follow along after him. He said in John 14:3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Do you have that full assurance? If you don't have that full assurance of hope, I invite you to come forward this morning while we're singing together and pray to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you know Jesus as your Lord, but you've been walking in despair, let's get together right now this morning and pray that despair out and replace it with the hope that only God can give. Whatever your need is, let's stand together and worship Him. Please come.